This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Nationwide and their farm certified agents. Where might your farm and home not be protected? Go to nationwide.com slash Andrew for answers to help protect your next. And by Pivot Bio Proven 40 OS, the nitrogen you need now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. In 1980, about 6% of food was exported. In 2020, about 30% of all food grown was exported by countries. 15 countries account for 80% of all food exports. Jason Clay helps us make sense of those trends and what that means for farmers moving forward. Will there be carrots to reward certain growing practices, or will sticks enter the marketplace that force change? It's an engaging conversation that will make you think about the future of how we farm. It's our topic for this week's Farm in the Countryside, brought to you in part by Nationwide. Farming and land ownership, of course, comes with its share of liabilities, and you need an insurance company to help protect you. But when it comes down to it, what you really need is an individual who understands what you deal with each day and knows how to help you see what you may have overlooked. That's why I've partnered with Nationwide, the number one ag insurer in their nation, and their farm certified agents. Those are agents that are specifically trained to handle the needs of farm and landowners. I hope you'll check out some of the videos we produced about key topics. Just go to nationwide.com slash Andrew. That's nationwide.com slash Andrew, where you can learn more and connect with their farm certified agents. And this week's show also brought to you by Pivot Bio. As I've mentioned, I've been using Pivot Bio now for four years on my corn crop. Pivot Bio Proven 40 provides corn with nitrogen when it needs it, no matter the weather. And now that predictability is available right on the corn seed. In fact, I already have my Pivot Bio Proven 40 ready for next year's corn crop. It's as simple as taking my ProBox to my local dealer and having the Proven right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio products contain naturally occurring microbes that fix nitrogen from the air and provide it directly to corn plants all season long. As you think about next crop year, I hope you'll learn more. Just contact your local sales rep or go to pivotbio.com. Jason Clay works for the World Wildlife Fund. And if that's all you knew, well, you might think he doesn't have much first-hand knowledge of farming. But if you happen to follow this show, you may remember that he and I hail from the same town. He grew up on a small farm doing all kinds of farm chores. And while he is now located in Washington, D.C., he knows the challenges and opportunities facing farmers of all sizes. And he has a global perspective on issues we need to know that will have an impact on us at home. I found his thoughts to really tie the global issues at hand back to what you and I may see where we live and how we can make changes coming down the road, an opportunity rather than a setback. Here's our conversation. Jason, here's where I thought we'd begin the discussion today. Uh, I think a lot of us in farm country are hearing about programs, it doesn't matter the company, but there are carbon programs and programs that will pay us to, to have certain practices on our farm. What I wanted to start with is just your view on, okay, why are those companies doing those types of things? Uh, we like to think it's altruistic to do the right thing and so forth, but give me the bigger global view of why are so many big companies now pushing toward those programs and hoping to get farmers to join those programs and sign up? Well, I think I think companies are beginning to see that, that market demand, uh, both in the U.S. Uh, from, from, com- from food companies, but also globally. Uh, from food companies and importing countries 
market demand is starting to uh, kind of require that that there's more transparency about how food is produced, and in particular about how many embedded greenhouse gas emissions are involved. I mean, this is is probably been been kicked off by concerns about soy production in Brazil that's linked to deforestation and. You know, some work that we've done shows that if if a salmon producer in Chile or or Norway uses soy from Brazil, it doubles the greenhouse gas emissions that are embedded in the salmon they sell. So they damn well need to know about this, and 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 they're asking their suppliers. So they're asking uh, spreading Nutreco out of Europe and Cargill Aqua Nutrition out of the U.S. and other places to have this information for them. They they want to know when they when they agree on their feed formulations with these companies. So this this information request is being passed on to traders. And to get access to some of these markets, they've actually got to start having more data. I think it's it's really about market access and 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 that a commodity isn't just number two yellow corn anymore. Now it also includes how much embedded carbon there is and how that corn was produced or how that soy was produced. For the farmer out here listening to this, then how does that impact them going down the road? I think that for the most part, I like to think that we as farmers want to make good decisions and right decisions, but should I be thinking about how I'm going to partner up with those companies? Because as you mentioned, it's not just number two yellow corn probably in the future. So how do I begin to think about that as a farmer? Well, I think you need to you need to start seeing this not as a market requirement, but as a market opportunity. Uh, and there's been a lot of of focus, I think, on on crop rotation, um, no-till, and on other ways to reduce farm labor and and the, the needs to pass over fields, et cetera, but also to increase soil health and particularly how it's being sold is soil carbon. I think and and I think those are good, but remember those are means to an end. Those practices don't guarantee carbon sequestration. And if you have a bad summer with high temperatures, uh, a drought conditions, you're going to have a lot of carbon volatilize out of those soils. But if you increase organic matter through no-till and through crop rotation and through cover crops, then you're going to have more organic matter on the surface, more organic matter in the soil. That's going to reduce your amount of pesticide use, your fungicide your fertilizer use, if you irrigate, it's going to reduce the amount of water you need because that carbon, that organic matter, actually bonds with those things and, and acts as like a slow-release capsule so that you actually need less. So here, when you start doing the math, farmers can make more money by using fewer inputs through these practices than they can by selling carbon in the soil. But if you use fewer inputs, like really energy intensive fertilizers or pesticides or even pumping water, then you've also saved carbon. And those emissions reductions are also something farmers can sell. So I think we focused entirely on soil carbon, but the bigger gain in terms of efficiency, and I think even money and certainly credible carbon savings is going to be in the greenhouse gas emissions you avoid, not just the ones you sequester. And then the sequestration maybe would allow farmers to begin to look at their land and see where they're farming marginal land. Every farmer I've ever met in the world has already taken some amount of 
land out of production ditches and other things that are just not, you, you can't produce there. But they've never actively uh, maybe replanted those, those areas with trees or with things that would absorb carbon, or they've never maybe abandoned land uh, that, that they are currently farming, but losing money on. Uh, that land could actually be more value for, for, for carbon emissions reductions, carbon sequestration, or even water markets if we could start to get them to happen. And there, I think companies that are buying these, these services, trying to line up farmers to produce, they're focused on cover crops, they're focused on things that are clear and farmers can do, et cetera. But those are all means, they're not ends. And an individual company can only buy so much and they're trying to line up producers to sell to them as well. But we need to figure out how to work together to create a more resilient kind of landscape level approach. And that's where governments really help need to help step in. Uh, and we need to harmonize what the downstream buyers are asking for. If Cargill's asking for one thing and somebody else is asking for another thing, it's going to be hard for farmers and you're going to get stuck. But if you have the option of doing this and then selling to the to the buyer that will pay you the most, then that's not a not a bad deal. Uh, how can we pivot some of the the monies in the farm bill to begin to support this type of farming uh, and and to set, help set minimum prices, floor prices for the carbon, floor prices for the greenhouse gas emissions saved, but also maybe water quality prices for downstream flow year round. That's that's better water for habitat and biodiversity. Uh, those are things that governments could step in and create markets for that individual companies just don't have the reach or the scale to do. Well, you mentioned governments there. And one of the things that you've written extensively about is the fact that these programs right now, for the most part, are, are voluntary, but that to really reach the scale that you're going to need to, to make the, the impact that you need to, in a sense, globally, it, it's going to take governments, would you say coming together? I hate to say mandatory, but is that where we're heading, that there will be standards in place? And if you want to be a part of this, you may have to abide by certain types of standards. Then. I, I think that, that this comes to a, a fundamental issue that, that is, I know it's, it's, it's a big issue for farmers in the U.S., uh, but, but it's a big issue for farmers, I think, anywhere. And that is, you know, where are the impacts coming from that we need to reduce? And the answer is they're probably coming from 10 to 20% of farmers that are more marginal, that are less well capitalized, that, that have less, not just training and education, but also experience, have been exposed to fewer new practices, can't afford them, et cetera. So if, you're, if you want to reduce the impacts of agriculture, you focus on those 10 to 20%. And I think this raises an important issue because a lot of commodity groups in the U.S., but also everywhere else, want to take the position that all, all farmers are, are sustainable and all farmers are equal. Well, they're not. I mean, it just doesn't stand to reason. Some farmers are better than others. Some land is better than others. Some crops are easier for some farms and farmers to grow than others. So we need to acknowledge those kinds of things. And then we need to, to really begin to focus on how we reduce the impacts. It may be that that 10 to 20% that has the biggest impacts on, on soil, on erosion, on water use, et cetera, on energy use, on, on fertilizer, pesticides, maybe they can get better. And, and if so, what are the, the levers? What are the incentives? And what are, what are the barriers for them getting better? 
but they also may actually be better at producing environmental services than they are at producing crops. Because if 20% of producers produce 60 to 80% of the impacts, but only 5 to 10% of the production, then what if they started producing carbon that could be then linked to the farmers that are also operating in that landscape so that you could link these two and have a more sustainable, a more living uh, landscape where nature and services are coming back into farming in a way that they, they haven't been as we move to more and more intensive, you know, mechanized agriculture over the years. We might need to take a step back, not to produce less, but produce more on less, with less, to be more efficient. And not take those other people out of farming, but actually give them a role now where they are producing services because they are marginal and that marginal land is actually very good for producing good services. In fact, in some ways it's marginal because it's better for services than it is for farming. To make those things happen, that will probably require some types of programs. You mentioned the farm bill there. Should we be focusing the farm bill then to help facilitate some of that, to move money to those producers, whether they be those that are on marginal land or, or so, so forth, to help make some of those things happen? Because without that, it's pretty easy for farmers to, to not change, I guess. Well, farmers respond to markets. And so that's why I was saying that that can governments pivot subsidies. I mean, this is depending on who you listen to, 550 to $700 billion a year. Uh, can those subsidies, can those, those government programs, in part at least, be used to help create and create floors for these new markets? Because I think it's those kind of markets in combination with more intensive production with fewer impacts that's going to be the future of the food system that that allows us to continue to live on this planet without simply gobbling up resources, without having sprawl into all the other parts of the planet that we don't currently use for food. Give me some examples of how that might work, because I think one of them, and you mentioned Brazil earlier, about it, I think it's a 1% levy on some of their products. Explain how that works, because that's one of the, well, the, the things sure. that you cite. So let me let me take a, a step back from that, and, and that is that the... The EU is basically through a program called the EUDR, so it's a it's a deforestation regulation. Uh, they are they are actually saying they do not want to buy product that has come from land that has been deforested since 2020. Uh, they will not. It's it's illegal to bring it into to Europe. So they're saying that if you want market access, you can't be deforesting. Now that that means that Brazilian producers who are legal are not going to be able to export to Brazil because of embedded carbon emissions, et cetera. So the question is, can those, can we set up a something that's similar to that about taking the worst impacts out of globally traded food? So now that's a stick, but it's a stick to reduce, you know, massive use of water or soil erosion or or degradation of natural environments or loss of habitat or or greenhouse gas emissions or, you know, overuse of fertilizer with nutrient and pollution going downstream. If we could take some of that out through trade agreements, then those producers would either need to get better or get out. And the question is, how do we cover the get better part? To me, I don't think that's the farmers. The farmers need to get better, but but they don't need to pay for this out of their profits. 
if they are selling food into a market, the market needs to be covering the actual cost of producing that food more sustainably. These are referred to by economists as externalities. Uh, and, and those are both environmental, like we've been talking about, but also livelihoods. If a farmer can't make a living, then it's not a sustainable system. So how do we bring those externalities into pricing? This idea of a 1% environmental fee or premium is to get consuming countries to pay 1% that would go directly back to producers to address these issues of uh, becoming more sustainable and more resilient. In Brazil, it might be deforestation. It might also be soil erosion or, or soil health. But in the U.S., it would probably be around soil health issues, around habitat and, 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 and erosion and, and issues like that. Or it could be grassland conversion instead of deforestation. So, I mean, there, there are different issues that would come up in each country. But, but having the trade system address this is a big stick. So you got to figure out what the carrot is here for for farmers, how to make that work. And I think if we can get the carrots moving quicker, then the sticks actually would become uh, more palatable, and people would actually see that there is a way to make more money because of of the carrots that are being offered uh, that could be used to match USDA funding. I mean, if you, if you think about it, why should global trade? Be allowed to undermine the natural resource base of this and future generations in exporting countries. I mean, that's just a kind of new kind of colonialism. It's mining resources. We need to make sure that trade actually maintains or increases productivities on farms, not the other. Because in another 10, 20 years, we're going to have another billion people and then almost another billion by 2050. These people are all going to eat. We've got to feed them all. Right now, 15 countries export 80% of the food. So those 15 countries, and U.S. is one of them, we've got to get this right in order to be able to continue to do this, not just year in and decade in, but generations in, and with the impacts of climate change. You mentioned something that I had written down here about the 15 countries generating about 80% or so of the, the food exports. In your mind, what does that mean? Because I like your global perspective on things. If I'm not one of those countries, how does this impact me? Because I think some of these issues are impacting them more than a country like the United States that has great natural resources and probably comparatively speaking has done a good job of managing them compared to a lot of other countries. So what about everybody else? Because they're obviously seeing the impact. Right. So so a couple of things. The first is that, and you say the U.S. is doing a, a pretty good job. I think they are. But But here's the thing. With a couple billion more people, and with them consuming more and consuming differently, especially more animal proteins, it's going to put more and more pressure on the producers and particularly the producers of export crops. Because right now we have 35 countries that can't feed themselves. They would starve without food imports. In fact, the little issue here that is harder to track is that in, in um, 1980, 6 or 7% of food was exported. In 2000, 15% was exported. In 2020, 30% is exported. So the amount of food that's being exported as population grows and as consumption increases is increasing. And we saw what happened in a 10-year period when China lift, lifted 400 million people out of poverty. That's what created the market demand that then accentuated the wheat, the reduced wheat production coming out of, of Russia and, and resulted in the Arab Spring. Well, who's going to say that there's not going to be a an Asian fall or a, 
uh, African winter. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we have to start anticipating and preparing for. But we need to make sure that food producers are becoming more sustainable, not less. And we need to manage the planet, not just a farm. I mean, we've, we're all in this together now. Increasingly, food is a globally traded commodity. So we've got to make sure that everybody's more sustainable. And I guess this, I, I'll state it very bluntly, and this, this I'm sure will generate a lot of ire, but the question is not does a farmer have a right to farm? They do. They own the land temporarily. It's going to be you know somebody else in the future when they die. But do they have a right to farm in a way that's unsustainable and pass those costs on to society? I don't think so. And so that's what we're trying to sort out right now. What does more sustainable look like? How can these companies help? But companies by themselves aren't big enough to solve this problem. You know, we've got to get governments involved and even a single government like the U.S. with comparative advantage where we can produce food, you know, with fewer impacts and in larger volumes than a lot of other parts of the world. Uh, we need to also realize that that we cannot feed the world by ourselves. Jason, in the, the minute or two that we've got remaining here, I know this is difficult to, to answer and we've talked about this in a sense, but what should American farmers know that are listening to this? Because I think it's tempting for us to say, well, this is all interesting, but it's so much bigger than me and somebody's just going to tell me what I have to do. But yet we're farmers, we play a role in this. So what do we need to know or do? There's two kinds of American farmers and there's solutions for both. The average American farmer and rancher are in their late 50s or early 60s, average. So it means half are older than that. Their options are very different. Okay. For the younger ones, they need to be open to new markets because they are certainly going to be producing crops that were never grown in their area or haven't been grown for some time because they're going to be the ones that they, they can produce going forward. They need to be looking at markets for other items that they can produce on their, their farm, like water, like uh, carbon sequestration. Those kinds of, of services are going to have markets as well. And I would estimate that within 20 or 30 years, a significant portion of, of farmland is going to sell those, those services into markets, and that will be a chunk of income. I mean, that surprised me. 20, 30 years ago, when I talked to ranchers uh, in the West, and they were making 25% of their income from selling hunting rights when, when crops were good. When crops were bad, they were making 50% of their income selling hunting rights. And we're not talking about ducks and geese. We're talking about doves. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a different kind of thing. And I think, I think people just have to open their, their minds to this. It's, it's not quite as easy as it was in the past, maybe growing soy and corn in rotation or crops like that. Now it may be lentils or it may be chickpeas or it may be other things that we're going to be growing because it's too hot to grow corn because of the issue with tasseling and heat at night, et cetera. So I think that on the younger side, uh, be prepared for change. It's going to be constant and be on the lookout for opportunities that come up with it, but share your information with other farmers. You're not competitors with each other. This is a, this is kind of a myth in farming, but in fact, you all can learn faster and it only makes the system more resilient when you do. On the older end, what if farmers who don't necessarily have a, a strategy for uh, conveying their farm on to children uh, there's no, they, they haven't figured that out or they don't have children or none of the children want to come back and farm. What if they could actually 
produce services rather than crops? What if they could actually live on their farm and make a living by selling services? You know, what markets would it take to do that? Can we start getting that explored now? Because globally, not just in the US, globally, most farmers are 58 and most ranchers are in their 60s. And so how, how do we begin to address those kinds of issues in different ways? Jason, I always appreciate the time. Always good conversation and helps uh, me and I think all of us think a little bit about uh, what we do in the, the bigger scheme of things. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Always, always interesting to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside and The Daily Show American Countryside on many social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. And if you miss one of these shows, it's easy to go back and listen to past programs. Just go to farmingthecountryside.com or go to your favorite podcast platform and look in the archives. I'm always trying to have a variety of topics that impact us in agriculture, and I hope to hear from you if you have ideas on future show guests. As always, thanks for listening. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Nationwide and their farm certified agents. Where might your farm and home not be protected? Go to nationwide.com slash Andrew for answers to help protect your next. And by Pivot Bioproven 40 OS, the nitrogen you need now on seed. Learn more at pivotbio.com.